Chapters twenty three and twenty four of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter twenty three. The second night off Papeete. Toward sunset, the mate came off singing merrily in the stern of his boat, and in attempting to climb up the side, succeeded in going plump into the water. He was rescued by the steward and carried across the deck with many moving expressions of love for his bearer. Tumbled into the quarter-boat, he soon fell asleep, and waking about midnight, somewhat sobered, went forward among the men. Here, to prepare for what follows, we must leave him for a moment. It was now plain enough that German was by no means unwilling to take the Julia to sea. Indeed, there was nothing he so much desired, though what his reasons were, seeing our situation, we could only conjecture. Nevertheless, so it was, and having counted much upon his rough popularity with the men to reconcile them to a short cruise under him, he had consequently been disappointed in their behavior. Still, thinking that they would take a different view of the matter, when they came to know what fine times he had in store for them, he resolved upon trying a little persuasion. So on going forward, he put his head down the forecastle scuttle, and hailed us all quite cordially, inviting us down into the cabin, where, he said, he had something to make merry withal. Nothing loath we went, and throwing ourselves along the transom, waited for the steward to serve us. As the can circulated, German, leaning on the table, and occupying the captain's armchair secured to the deck, opened his mind as bluntly and freely as ever. He was by no means yet sober. He told us we were acting very foolishly, that if we only stuck to the ship, he would lead us all a jovial life of it. Enumerating the casks still waiting untapped in the Julia's wooden cellar, it was even hinted vaguely that such a thing might happen as our not coming back for the captain, whom he spoke of but lightly, asserting what he had often said before, that he was no sailor. Moreover, and perhaps with special reference to Dr. Longghost and myself, he assured us generally that if there were any among us studiously inclined, he would take great pleasure in teaching such the whole art and mystery of navigation, including the gratuitous use of his quadrant. I should have mentioned that previous to this, he had taken the doctor aside and said something about reinstating him in the cabin with augmented dignity, besides throwing out a hint that I myself was in some way or other to be promoted. But it was all to no purpose. Bent the men were upon going ashore, and there was no moving them. At last he flew into a rage, much increased by the frequency of his potations, and with many imprecations concluded by driving everybody out of the cabin. We tumbled up the gangway in high good humor. Upon deck everything looked so quiet that some of the most pugnacious spirits actually lamented that there was so little prospect of an exhilarating disturbance before morning. It was not five minutes, however, ere these fellows were gratified. Sidney Ben, said to be a runaway ticket of leave man, footnote, some of the most promising convicts in New South Wales were hired out to the citizens as servants, thus being in some degree permitted to go at large. 
government, however, still claiming them as wards. They are provided with tickets, which they are obliged to show to any one who pleases to suspect their being abroad without warrant. Hence the above appellation. This was the doctor's explanation of the term. End footnote. And for reasons of his own, one of the few who still remained on duty, had, for the sake of the fun, gone down with the rest into the cabin, where Bembo, who meanwhile was left in charge of the deck, had frequently called out for him. At first, Ben pretended not to hear, but on being sung out for again and again, bluntly refused, at the same time casting some illiberal reflections on the Maori's maternal origin, which the latter had been long enough among sailors to understand as in the highest degree offensive. So just after the men came up from below, Bembo singled him out and gave him such a cursing in his broken lingo that it was enough to frighten one. The convict was the worse for liquor. Indeed, the Maori had been tippling also, and before we knew it, a blow was struck by Ben, and the two men came together like magnets. The ticket of leave man was a practiced bruiser, but the savage knew nothing of the art pugilistic, and so they were even. It was clear hugging and wrenching till both came to the deck. Here they rolled over and over in the middle of a ring which seemed to form of itself. At last the white man's head fell back and his face grew purple. Bembo's teeth were at his throat. Rushing in all round, they hauled the savage off, but not until repeatedly struck on the head would he let go. His rage was now absolutely demoniac. He lay glaring and writhing on the deck without attempting to rise. Cowed, as they supposed he was, from his attitude, the men, rejoiced at seeing him thus humbled, left him, after rating him in sailor style for a cannibal and a coward. Ben was attended to and led below. Soon after this, the rest also, with but few exceptions, retired into the forecastle, and having been up nearly all the previous night, they quickly dropped about the chests and rolled into the hammocks. In an hour's time not a sound could be heard in that part of the ship. Before Bembo was dragged away, the mate had in vain endeavored to separate the combatants, repeatedly striking the Maori, but the seamen interposing at last kept him off. And intoxicated as he was, when they dispersed, he knew enough to charge the steward, a steady seaman be it remembered, with the present safety of the ship, and then went below where he fell directly into another drunken sleep. Having remained upon deck with the doctor some time after the rest had gone below, I was just on the point of following him down when I saw the Maori rise, draw a bucket of water, and holding it high above his head, pour its contents right over him. This he repeated several times. There was nothing very peculiar in the act, but something else about him struck me. However, I thought no more of it, but descended the scuttle. After a restless nap, I found the atmosphere of the forecastle so close, from nearly all the men being down at the same time, that I hunted up an old pea-jacket and went on deck, intending to sleep it out there till morning. Here I found the cook and steward, Waimantu, Rope-yarn, and the Dane, who, being all quiet, manageable fellows, and holding aloof from the rest since the captain's departure, had been ordered by the mate not to go below until sunrise. 
they were lying under the lee of the bulwarks two or three fast asleep and the others smoking their pipes and conversing to my surprise bembo was at the helm but there being so few to stand there now they told me he had offered to take his turn with the rest at the same time heading the watch and to this of course they made no objection it was a fine bright night all moon and stars and white crests of waves the breeze was light but freshening and close hauled poor little jewel as if nothing had happened was heading in for the land which rose high and hazy in the distance after the day's uproar the tranquillity of the scene was soothing and i leaned over the side to enjoy it more than ever did i now lament my situation but it was useless to repine and i could not upbraid myself so at last becoming drowsy i made a bed with my jacket under the windlass and tried to forget myself how long i lay there i cannot tell but as i rose the first object that met my eye was bembo at the helm his dark figure slowly rising and falling with the ship's motion against the spangled heavens behind he seemed all impatience and expectation standing at arm's length from the spokes with one foot advanced and his bare head thrust forward where i was the watch were out of sight and no one else was stirring the deserted decks and broad white sails were gleaming in the moonlight presently a swelling dashing sound came upon my ear and i had a sort of vague consciousness that i had been hearing it before the next instant i was broad awake and on my feet right ahead and so near that my heart stood still was a long line of breakers heaving and frothing it was the coral reef girdling the island behind it and almost casting their shadows upon the deck were the sleeping mountains about whose hazy peaks the gray dawn was just breaking the breeze had freshened and with a steady gliding motion we were running straight for the reef all was taken in at a glance the fell purpose of bembo was obvious and with a frenzied shout to wake the watch i rushed aft they sprang to their feet bewildered and after a short but desperate scuffle we tore him from the helm in wrestling with him the wheel left for a moment unguarded flew to leeward thus fortunately bringing the ship's head to the wind and so retarding her progress previous to this she had been kept three or four points free so as to close with the breakers her headway now shortened i studied the helm keeping the sails just lifting while we glided obliquely toward the land to have run off before the wind an easy thing would have been almost instant destruction owing to a curve of the reef in that direction at this time the dane and the steward were still struggling with the furious maori and the others were running about irresolute and shouting but darting forward the instant i had the helm the old cook thundered on the forecastle with a handspike breakers breakers close aboard bout ship bout ship up came the sailors staring about them in stupid horror haul back the head yards let go the lee forebrace ready about about were now shouted on all sides while distracted by a thousand orders they ran hither and thither fairly panic-stricken it seemed all over with us and i was just upon the point of throwing the ship full into the wind a step which saving us for the instant would have sealed our fate in the end 
when a sharp cry shot by my ear like the flight of an arrow. It was Salem. Already forward, hard down. Round and round went the spokes, the Julia with her short keel spinning to windward like a top. Soon the jib-sheets lashed the stays, and the men, more self-possessed, flew to the braces. Mainsail haul was now heard, and the fresh breeze streamed fore and aft the deck, and directly the after-yards were whirled round. In half a minute more we were sailing away from the land on the other tack, with every sail distended. Turning on our heel within a little more than a biscuit's toss of the reef, no earthly power could have saved us, were it not that, up to the very brink of the coral rampart, there are no soundings. CHAPTER Twenty Four: OUTBREAK OF THE CREW The purpose of Bembo had been made known to the men generally by the watch, and now that our salvation was certain, by an instinctive impulse they raised a cry and rushed toward him. Just before liberated by Dunk and the steward, he was standing doggedly by the mizzenmast, and as the infuriated sailors came on, his bloodshot eye rolled and his sheath-knife glittered over his head. Down with him! Strike him down! Hang him at the main-yard! Such were the shouts now raised. But he stood unmoved, and for a single instant they absolutely faltered. Cowards! cried Salem, and he flung himself upon him. The steel descended like a ray of light, but did no harm, for the sailor's heart was beating against the Maoris before he was aware. They both fell to the deck when the knife was instantly seized, and Bembo secured. Forward, forward with him, was again the cry. Give him a sea-toss, overboard with him. And he was dragged along the deck, struggling and fighting with tooth and nail. All this uproar immediately over the mate's head at last roused him from his drunken nap, and he came staggering on deck. What's this? he shouted, running right in among them. It's the Maori, sir. They are going to murder him, sir, here sobbed poor Rope-Yarn, crawling close up to him. Avast, avast, roared German, making a spring toward Bembo and dashing two or three of the sailors aside. At this moment the wretch was partly flung over the bulwarks, which shook with his frantic struggles. In vain the doctor and others tried to save him. The men listened to nothing. Murder and mutiny by the salt sea! shouted the mate, and dashing his arms right and left, he planted his iron hand upon the Maori's shoulder. There are two of us now, and as you serve him, you serve me, he cried, turning fiercely round. Over with them together, then, exclaimed the carpenter, springing forward, but the rest fell back before the courageous front of German, and, with the speed of thought, Bembo, unharmed, stood upon deck. Aft with ye, cried his deliverer, and he pushed him right among the men, taking care to follow him up close. Giving the sailors no time to recover, he pushed the Maori before him, till they came to the cabin scuttle, when he drew the slide over him and stood still. Throughout, Bembo never spoke one word. Now forward, where ye belong, cried the mate, addressing the seamen, who by this time, rallying again, had no idea of losing their victim. The Maori, the Maori, they shouted. Here the doctor, in answer to the mate's repeated questions, stepped forward, 
and related what Bembo had been doing, a matter which the mate but dimly understood from the violent threatenings he had been hearing. For a moment he seemed to waver, but at last, turning the key in the padlock of the slide, he breathed through his set teeth. Ye can't have him. I'll hand him over to the consul. So forward with ye, I say. When there's any drowning to be done, I'll pass the word. So away with ye, ye bloodthirsty pirates. It was to no purpose that they begged or threatened. German, although by no means sober, stood his ground manfully, and before long they dispersed, soon to forget everything that had happened. Though we had no opportunity to hear him confess it, Bembo's intention to destroy us was beyond all question. His only motive could have been a desire to revenge the contumely heaped upon him the night previous, operating upon a heart irreclaimably savage, and at no time fraternally disposed toward the crew. During the whole of this scene, the doctor did his best to save him. But well knowing that all I could do would have been equally useless, I maintained my place at the wheel. Indeed, no one but German could have prevented this murder. End of chapters 23 and 24 Recording by Tricia G.